Hello and welcome again to another edition of Irreligiosophy, where since January 2009, we have enjoyed the groping and sodomization of demons around the world. Yeah, despite multiple uh, exorcism attempts, they still sodomize us. I thought the exorcisms were just there to enjoy the sodomy. Yeah, but... <laughs> I guess those were invitations. <laughs> <laughs> that was just expanding our group. All right, uh, yeah, we're going to do a podcast on the, as promised, haunting in Connecticut. Why didn't we withhold this one for weeks and weeks? Well, because we enjoy this horror stupidity. Yeah, we really should have done this in uh, for Halloween. But uh, my advice is to not listen to this, save it until next Halloween, and then just listen to this over and over during the six weeks we're absent next year. Okay, you have been in contact with our fan base. These guys have about as much patience as premature ejaculation. You want to go straight to it, or uh, Chloe says she wants some uh, skunk dick stuff. Well, it's it's interesting that you bring Chloe up, because uh, apparently she's not getting enough foreplay in her life. Um, the verbal foreplay is what brings her up to the intellectual intercourse. And me being the man I am, I cannot deny a woman foreplay. So I say we do some skunk dicks. All right, that's, that's mighty nice of you. Uh, <laughs> we got... Yes, don't worry, I am here for foreplay, always. Let's do a uh, husband paid $50,000 for wife's naked prayer sessions. And by the way, our research on all these things were thorough. Uh, Leighton and I both looked in the uh, forum, our message board, <laughs> picked up some of those. And... Well, see, I had a reason for doing that. Unlike you, I like to listen to our fan base. And when they put that much work into it, it, it is only up to me to go there and partake. Yeah, I'm just lazy. So this guy... Um, <laughs> <laughs> his wife's apparently, I don't know, cursed or something like that. And so he goes, you know, does what anyone else would do. He goes to this local holy man, right? Yeah. And uh, he says that the curse on the woman can only be broken if this holy man prayed over her naked body. Well, how this got started is very fishy in and of itself. Now, uh, that's, not, that's not fishy. The whole thing is fishy, but oh, okay. this is what I love. Is in 2008... They found a black wax object under their doormat and began receiving text messages from someone they didn't know talking about a black magic curse that would kill their family. And suddenly they're contacting these priests going, hey, uh, you know, we're in trouble. What should we do? Ooh, I know, $50,000 and your wife naked by herself. That'll solve it. Sounds like a really good idea, because there is scriptural precedence for this. All over the Old and New Testament, uh, the apostles are charging people for uh, taking naked pictures or paintings of their wives. Yeah, yeah, especially when uh, the man doing the naked prayer session tells the wife that she needs to be blindfolded, otherwise her eyeballs will be burned out because of the evil. Yeah, uh, not only that, but he's too cheap to fucking bring the blindfold himself. So he says that <laughs> you need to bring eye patches, right? Yeah. You bring not the you know forget about the fact that he's just been paid two payments of twenty five thousand dollars in cash. The guy can't even spring for his own fucking blindfold. Yeah. Now, now me, I've never been married, so I'm having difficulty seeing where the problem is of sending my wife naked to another man. Uh, Charlie, maybe you could 
enlighten me on this. Well, um, I love it how he says that his his wife had seemed tired and dizzy as she returned from the second prayer session. You know, she doesn't really want to go, but this husband's pushing her to go. Yeah. She she felt again that she was sexually assaulted or raped or penetrated, and she felt someone on top of her. And I think she said for the second prayer session she remembered holding a penis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Now, what would your response to that be if your wife said it to you? Well, I'd tell her it's probably a dream. And uh, that's probably what you thought was happening. <laughs> yeah, These guys thanks. are holy men, for God's sakes. They'd never do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's not as if there is precedence all over the news about holy men taking advantage. But you are actually handing her up on a silver platter and then telling her to just hush up on those little premonitions that she's having. Yeah, uh, <laughs> this holy man said that if we don't break the curse, I would die of cancer, and my husband would die from a fatal accident, and slowly my children would die and my family. I might just wait to see if maybe one of those would happen. Yeah, yeah. before you shell out $50,000, you, you might want to see if there are any symptoms beyond text messaging and a little wax doll. So skunk dick number one is the holy guy who probably put the fucking wax figure in the house in the first place. Yeah. I would say skunk dick number two should be the Indonesian volcano's spiritual guardian dies in eruption. (laughs) I love this one. (laughs) So Indonesia's most volatile volcano, right? Uh You know, it's so volatile that they uh, assign this guy to be the volcano's spiritual gatekeeper. Yeah, he has been the gatekeeper since 1982. He lives about two and a half miles away from the volcano. And every time there's an evacuation, he refuses to. So it's his job, apparently, to be the uh, gatekeeper of this volcano. And uh, it erupted, of course. Everyone evacuated. But this Maba Marigian was found inside his house, his body reportedly in a praying position. Well, apparently the spirit of the volcano did not like the food he was offering in supplication. Uh, well, he had like 30 years of experience, didn't he? Why'd yeah. you fuck up now? Yeah, he, he got it from 1982. Uh, the guy before him was Hameng Kabambawana Ix. I like X better. <laughs> this was not the first time Marid John had defied orders to evacuate. In 2006, he explained uh, to a reporter, I'm not afraid because it's my duty. I'm like a soldier. They are never scared. You ever seen people just crying in foxholes? <laughs> is, is that just part of the release before they go on a killing spree? So 40,000 people evacuated. But he stayed there. What was his job? I mean, he's to turn off the volcano or to no, no. It from his erupting? job was to keep the spirit of the volcano happy with with food, with offerings, with prayer, that sort of thing. Now, uh, to make matters worse, uh, the Yogi Yarkarta Palace, <laughs> Gusti Prabakusuma, <laughs> uh, basically pointed out that they had a premonition that this guy was going to die. We had known long before it happened that Maba Marajan would be taken by Marepi. Now that he's gone, we have to choose a new gatekeeper soon. Yeah, I wonder what the qualifications are for that job. Uh, very high levels of depression. <laughs> the third skunk candidate is a Muslim cleric who says that rape is impossible in marriage. 
Yeah, th- this is very interesting because he points out that he doesn't understand it because sex is part of marriage. And uh, he claimed that many married women who alleged rape were lying. Those women, they are always causing trouble. Yeah, yeah. Now, he actually angered a lot of the police officers because they're out there saying, hey, we're trying to encourage women to come forward and report rape because this is an underreported crime. How many women out there are going to come forward about this? They're part of the problem, encouraging these lying women to come forth and lie some more. (laughs) Yeah, because clearly there cannot be any rape within the marriage. Maybe aggression, maybe indecent activity, because when they got married, the understanding was that sexual intercourse was part of the marriage. So there cannot be anything against sex in marriage. Well, that's true. So when his wife comes home with a... 12-inch double-ended dildo bends him over and shoves it up his ass. That was part of the agreement in marriage. Well, why is he complaining? Double-ended, and she's getting hers while giving him his. That's the definition of intercourse, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This is just well. Uh, You know, and the guy contradicts himself. He says in Islamic Sharia, rape is adultery by force. So long as a woman is his wife, it cannot be termed as rape. It is reprehensible, but we do not call it rape. So just um, uh, forced intercourse, that's not rape. Rape is adultery. Where the fuck did that come from? Well, because you can only rape outside of your family circle. (laughs) This all goes back to the Bible saying, hey, if you rape them in a field and get caught, you have to pay the father and marry her. So apparently what he's saying is the Quran or, or the Bible or whatever, the scriptures, not him. He's just repeating what the scriptures already say. Yeah, that like you can every um, other religious wacko does. Yeah, forcibly fuck your wife against her will. Um, yeah. But you have to come up with another term for it. Hell, it's not rape. Rape is someone else fucking your wife against her will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And I think the most telling part about this entire uh, speech he's giving is the punishment for those who are considered to have indecently forced themselves on the wife. They say that the punishment will be... Wait a second. How can you decently force yourself on your wife? It's very simple. You drug her first, then she doesn't struggle. (laughs) It's it's more decent than duct tape, isn't it? I should not have asked that question. Uh, Look who you're talking to. Why the hell would you ever (laughs) ask that question? (laughs) Anyway, the, the punishment is he may be disciplined and he may be made to ask forgiveness. That should be enough. That seems uh, quite uh, equal to the crime. You know, you got to make the punishment fit the crime. You, yeah. you force yourself on a woman, likely tearing her vagina, uh, and uh, you, you have to say you're sorry. As long as he apologizes, was there ever really any true harm done? No, no. It would, The fault lies with the woman. She should have spread her legs and allowed him in. Right. He wouldn't have had to force himself if the woman had agreed to her contractual fucking. Yeah, after all, sex is implied in marriage. So, ladies, let's spread those legs. Come on now. This guy's a senior Muslim cleric who runs uh, Great Britain's largest network of Sharia courts. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, now, not all Muslims agree with them. There's Iniyat Banglawala. Uh, he's the chairman of Muslims for UK. His statement is, Sheikh Saeed's comments are woefully misguided and entirely inappropriate. 
rape, whether within marriage or outside it, is an abominable act and is clearly against the law. So it's not all Muslims, just this jackass. That guy's going to get a jihad declared on him. Can you declare a jihad on another Muslim? I'm pretty sure you can. They're not a true Muslim. (laughs) (laughs) And who determines true Muslimism? Whoever's jihading. (laughs) God, I love jihads. (laughs) Okay, well, let's feed that into our... um... Uh, expensive state-of-the-art computer. Yes, we we got all new relays installed, so... And what do we got? Who won? We have NOM. I don't understand. What is NOM? I don't know. We didn't even vote, somehow. So much for the foreplay, we just jumped right into the rape, (laughs) didn't we? National Organization for Marriage. Uh, now these guys are suing. <laughs> it's not enough. It's not enough that um, they, they uh, interfere with civil matters. These religious assholes who are a front for the Mormons' um, yeah. opposition to gay marriage. It's not enough that they involve themselves in civic matters. They are suing because they don't feel like the law should apply to them. Yeah. Exactly the same as the Mormon Church. Yeah, they don't feel that they should have to report where their contributions and money is coming from. I wonder why they are saying that they should have this. Yeah, you don't want to, heaven forbid you divulge, you know, your funds that you're spending, that you actually, actually fucking comply with the law. Uh, So this is a group, National Organization of Marriage, says it, it wants to run ads in the governor's race of Rhode Island, uh, and other contests, but doesn't want to have to comply with the state campaign finance laws. Now, th- this is what I love. These people actually want to do what's right, and they've been told since the time they were born that they were going to be a peculiar and delightsome people, yet they want to hide the fact that they're peculiar. National Organization for Marriage said in a federal lawsuit that it should not be forced to report its expenditures or comply with spending limits or bans that are required for political action committees. The group said it shouldn't be considered a political action committee because it's not controlled by a political candidate and does not spend the majority of its money on Rhode Island's political races. So because they're a federal group, yeah. they shouldn't have to comply with state laws. Well, of course, because uh, you know that's, that's how we get around state laws, is we go to the federal level so we can continue to break laws. It doesn't even... the, the the lawsuit doesn't even specify the races that the National Organization for Marriage wants to be involved in. They just want a blanket uh, approval for their illegal activities, and they just want to continue yeah. being illegal. Yeah, and uh, what ad do they want to just uh, blindly pass forward? Well, it's one about a little girl, Emily, who goes to school and learns that a prince can marry a prince, and then she can marry a princess. And then, at the end of this little commercial, it instructs them to speak with, oh, I don't know, the two people in the uh, Democratic candidates who are for gay marriage? Yeah. They, they, it encourages voters to support the Republican nominee for governor. So, apparently, even though you know they're not financed by a political group, it, it's amazing that they only support Republicans. <laughs> That's true. We should all call him up and say thank you for standing up for marriage. Ah, uh, I gotta follow that. See if uh, see what the outcome of that fucking piece of shit is. Well, uh, I'd rather uh, keep my appetite, so you keep me versed on that. 
All right. Well, should we now, uh, concluding with the foreplay, let's forcibly uh, <laughs> inflict ourselves on our fans. Well, as long as we apologize for it later, we should be all right. <laughs> it can't be called rape. You have to come up with another term for it. What uh, we ought to do is, is say in the comments section, please come up with a term that you think would be suitable <laughs> if, you know, not rape. Other than Yeah, uh, women, uh, you are allowed to speak in this instance. So. All right, haunting in Connecticut. Yeah, we've been wanting to do this ever since last year, right, when I couldn't find it last year. Yeah. And, course i found it and then i lost it again yeah we found it while we were setting up for halloween this year and put it somewhere where we wouldn't lose it and then had to purchase it like two days ago (laughs) (laughs) all right so um haunting in connecticut then uh i'd recommend you guys go uh see the movie it's horrible terrible movie yeah Uh, plan to bring lots of friends and then just Mystery Science Theater, the whole thing. Just make fun of the whole thing. Otherwise, you won't know what we're talking about. Because uh, what we're going to talk about mostly is the TV show, the documentary, right? The truth upon which the movie was very loosely based. Yeah, and we're talking loosely, considering uh, while I watched both sequences, I wrote down every paranormal activity that happened. The movie has more than twice as many and they are far more severe. Yeah, and the movie just fucking makes shit up. I mean, the yeah, whole bit about the seances blat- and everything like that, all yeah, made up. Blatantly made up. In fact, uh, at least 70% of the movie is just made up. So let's back up here. Uh, basically, the story is that um, uh, the, the kid's name was, was it Paul in the documentary? In the documentary, it was Paul. However, his real name is Philip Snedeker. Right. Paul Parker in the in the documentary and Matthew Campbell <laughs> in the movie. The fuck, man? Stick with I, one name. I don't know. They're, I think they're just trying to confuse everybody so much that no one will do the research into it. So they said that the kid was diagnosed with cancer at age 14. They never mentioned what kind of cancer it is. I was thinking like a leukemia or something, but apparently it was uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently he had Hodgkin's lymphoma and in Connecticut, there's the Yukon Hospital, and they were taking him there for cobalt treatments. Yeah, radiation therapy. So the doctors gave him six months to live. You know, I, I don't know. I was in high school in 87. Um, right now, Hodgkin's lymphoma, anyway, has a 90% survival rate for the, the, the young onset Hodgkin's version. Yeah. They yeah, said sh- radical experimental treatment was needed. <laughs> daily treatment. Yeah, and it was uh, an eight-hour drive round trip for them to take their son up for this treatment. Four hours each way, 300 miles. That's not bad. It's like 70 miles per hour in 1987. I think she's violating quite a few speed limits. Yeah, I I can see that. And uh, in the movie, it's especially funny when uh, the husband asks her, how long did it take you to drive? (laughs) Yeah. She goes, do I really need to go over how many times we had to pull over the car so we could vomit? Okay. Jesus. You little pussy, roll down the window and stick your head out. So you have to run the car through the washing uh, every once in a while. Just puke outside the window. Have you ever been on a family vacation before? Jesus Christ. Roll down the window, puke out the side, roll it back up. God, my mom made us hang it out the window when we had to pee and she didn't want to stop. So (laughs) 
if we can hang that out the window, you can hang your head out the window. With 19 kids, no way you're stopping every time some kid has to go to the bathroom or throw Why do you up. think there were windows in the van in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, mom is looking around for a place that's closer to the hospital, and she finds not only a beautiful house, multiple stories, basement, upstairs, downstairs, large rooms, wooden floor, absolutely gorgeous, but it's surprisingly within their price range after paying all these medical bills. Yes, yes, very surprising. And uh, in the movie it states that they dumped all of their money into opening and starting this new business. So, yeah, fuck the kid. He's just dragging you down. (laughs) Right. Who cares if your kid's got cancer? It's the business that's important. (laughs) The business is very important. Uh, So um, in the documentary, unlike in the movie... They um, agreed to rent the house, and then they found out that there was a funeral home because Dad's some type of construction worker, yeah. and he's you know handling all these tools whose function is readily apparent. Yeah, but he said, let's see. I, <laughs> I've been working with tools all my life, and I didn't know what these tools were for. He's on the, the fucking at saw. at this point is holding a bone saw, and he's like, I have no <laughs> idea what this is for. And I'm sitting there thinking, what kind of tools are you using? <laughs> it has all these cutty things on one end. I've never seen something like this. There's, like, serrated edges. Is this a baker's knife? It goes on for, like, ten minutes where they're looking around. There's fucking blush and rouge and formaldehyde. There's yeah. a metal... Uh, but you know, table where that's got perforations in it, so the fluids will drain down. Yeah. There's a fucking pump. There's a goddamn pump. We're talking not a little pump. This thing is three feet tall, and it's got rubber hoses with giant needles. It's a fucking pump. <laughs> they still don't know what it is. And they walk in there like, oh, look at this, a walk-in freezer. <laughs> <laughs> and look, there's shelves that are perfectly proportioned for holding a body. <laughs> Oh, look, there are several bodies over here already. I wonder what this house could be. (laughs) So they figure out, it dawns on them, these guys are not the brightest people in the world, that this has been a funeral home. And that's where they prepared the bodies to have the funerals upstairs. Yeah, yeah. As if the large bay window slash doors weren't clue enough that there was something going on in the basement. (laughs) Yeah, right. So (laughs) they decide, well, uh, we're going to rent this place all right but we're not going to tell the kids yeah. we're, we're going to hide the the history of the house of the kids because heaven forbid we don't want to scare the children and how do you think they hide what went on in that house well they go to their landlord and they tell him about it and he's like okay so he goes in clears out the room but he leaves large items that might be useful to the family such as the ginormous stainless steel bleed out gurney table Never know when you're going to have to be bleeding bodies out. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I know I would leave that there just so the older brother could harass the younger brother. (laughs) So, uh, wait, wait, wait. Before we move on, uh, they were claiming that they had no idea that this was a funeral home. However, the former owner and their in-house neighbor, someone's going to have to explain to me what that term means... (laughs) They claim that the family was fully informed of the situation prior to it being rented. 
of course. It's illegal not to inform. They have very strict rules about this stuff. Yeah. Any yeah. pertinent details about the house, if anyone's been murdered there, certainly if there was a fucking funeral home, yeah, uh, that qualifies. Of course they were told. And they the didn't movie. just read it sight unseen and, oh, my God. The, the landlord is trying so hard to hide it that he left all the fucking mortuary equipment and embalming stuff down there. And the crucifixes throughout the house, especially <laughs> the one on the door with a small collection plate that we're using to hold our keys. I love it. They walk in. There's a fucking crucifix on every door frame of the house. In every fucking room, there's a crucifix. Yeah, now, Gee, these people must have been really religious. Yeah, yeah. The movie was smart enough to realize that there was a flaw in this story, that there was a flaw in them not knowing. And so in the movie, when the landlord is talking to her about it, he states that the house has a bit of a history. So they decide that um, they want to hide this from the children, right, so as not to stress them out. Yes. And what's the first thing they do? They force the fucking kid with cancer to sleep in the basement. <laughs> Not only do they force the kid with cancer, but they force his younger brother. Because in later interviews, they claim that that was the only room that was big enough for two teenage boys. Yeah, I'll call bullshit on that. Uh, I would shared a room for half my fucking life. Yeah. Well into my teenage years, uh, I, I had a room uh, with my brother, and it wasn't a huge room. Yeah, I mean, with didn't my share friend. a room with their brother. I shared my room with three brothers. I didn't get my own room until I was 12 years old. Yeah, you know, if they didn't find a, a room big enough for both of them to share, I guess they just would have been sleeping outside in a fucking tent in a fucking break. <laughs> now, uh, before the family even moves in, the mother decides she's going to do a little spring cleaning. So she gets out a mop bucket. She begins to mop the floor and uh, mops blood out of the bucket all over the floor and claims that it was disgusting and that it turned to blood red and smelled of decaying flesh. Well, that's the clue to what the reality was, and it is that she was on her period. Yeah, yeah. Well, you got to find some sort of excuse as to why there's blood on the floor. All over the floor. <laughs> <laughs> She's mopping up a bunch of blood. It was so bad in the uh, documentary that, um, you know, the housekeeper had to come in and help her with a bunch of towels. Yeah. And the housekeeper in the documentary has absolutely no reaction. She's just like, oh, here, let me grab some paper towels so we can help clean this up. Let me clean up that blood that stinks of death and decay. I'll get some <laughs> fucking bounty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you've got Mr. Clean up there flexing his muscles going, oh, fuck. <laughs> God. So, um... Well, after they move in, as Paul is forced into the basement, that's when he gets the first chill. Right, he feels an icy chill. Paul says he heard a voice call him by name. And his mom's explanation was that he's so close to death, he could sense it was a funeral home. Now, anyone else could sense this when they saw the first fucking eight crucifixes in the house. <laughs> or the fact that you forced him into the basement where these giant bay windows are leading directly into the room. Yeah. Who has doors in the middle of your fucking bedroom that are complete windows, glass panes that you open up into the next room? So yeah, now, somehow, though, it was because he was so close to death that he could sense somehow that it was a funeral home. Or he could have fucking talked to any one of the goddamn neighbors who all yeah. knew it was a funeral home. Or the fact that they were right next to a goddamn cemetery. 
you drive by the fucking cemetery to get to the driveway of the house. As if that wasn't stressful enough for the kid who's next to death. I mean, oh, I see why my parents are bringing me here. Because a funeral's fucking two feet this way! (laughs) And not only that, there is a magnificent difference between the movie and the documentary at this point. Because in the movie, the boy walks down there and he chooses this room. Whereas in the documentary, both boys are pleading with their parents to get out of there. Right. In the movie, they're trying to prevent this kid from being stressed out. And he, multi- you know, multiple times he comes running up in the middle of the fucking night. The documentary even says that the dad got tired of being woken up in the middle of the night with all these complaints. And it, it never occurs to the parents to give him a different room. Or, I don't know, here, have our room, uh, my little child with cancer. Yeah. Why, <laughs> since you're so stressed out, why don't you spend a couple nights in my room and I'll sleep downstairs where the fucking corpses were embalmed. Yes, now, son, I love you enough that I'm going to teach you a lesson and how to be a man. Face your fears despite the fact that you're going through goddamn chemotherapy. Yeah, I know you're getting daily radiation treatments. Your hair's probably falling out at this time. Your stomach lining is being uh, irritated. You're vomiting on a daily basis. Your sleep isn't really that important. Your immune system doesn't depend on, you know, nice, restful sleep. We don't want to get you as much sleep as possible. So quit fucking pestering me. Grow some balls, you little bitch, and get back down to your room. (laughs) (laughs) So other things start happening at this time. You know, his sister sees a ghost in the bedroom, and the parents... Not yet. Not yet. The big one that happens right after he gets the icy chill is he puts his brother on the table and spins him until the brother freaks out. That wasn't a supernatural event, though. Uh, the brother was claiming it was because he was claiming yeah. that his older brother was uh, possessed at that point. Oh, oh okay. So you're a, a demon who's freshly possessed a new body, and the first thing you do is tease your younger brother. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there was no precedent for this, especially considering the back history between the brothers, like when he locked his younger brother into a chest and then forgot he was in the chest and walked away. (laughs) Absolutely no prior history for this. So the sister sees a ghost in the bedroom, right? She runs out and tells the mom. The mom's actually reasonable about this. She says, I know that Paul told the other kids about the funeral home because they they were aware that Paul already knew, right? Yeah. Um, But So she goes and confronts Paul, and he swears he didn't tell. Oh, okay. I believe my kid, definitely. Not only does he swear he didn't tell, but in the same breath, points to his younger brother and says, he's the only one I've told. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> oh, fucking ridiculous. Yeah. And as if the girl didn't have any fucking neighbor friends who told her the house was neighbor funeral friends, home anyway. Or maybe she had eyes and could see the cemetery and crucifixes up the ass. Or an in-house neighbor. You don't know. Yeah. What the fuck is an in-house neighbor? <laughs> uh, it's probably somebody who rents the basement from you is my guess. How could the, they rent the basement? That's where they had the children. <laughs> the the demons. Well, these are different people. The demons probably an in-house neighbor. Oh, I wonder how much they pay for rent. Maybe that's why it was so cheap. Uh, sodomy. So mom sets the table. Others, you know, significant. I mean, this is indisputable. It's like the resurrection of Christ. Yeah. Indisputable. Yeah. Mom sets the table. She moves back in to get some forks or something. Goes back in the room and. The table's not set. The plates are back in the cabinet. And Hmm. she says, I know I set the table. 
Yeah, let's see. You're a mother. You care about your son. You're not getting sleep because your son keeps waking you up all night. You have to drive him to the hospital for treatments daily, and there's not any stress in the house whatsoever, so you are clear-minded and know exactly what you were doing. Right. She said she's leaning against the refrigerator because she's so exhausted from being so stressed out from all this, but I'm sure she was in a clear and present state of mind and absolutely set that table, and magically the plates went back. There's no other alternative explanation for that. Yeah, yeah, no other explanation whatsoever. Uh, come on. <laughs> so Paul at this time is, is getting daily treatments, right? And she said, yeah. it never occurred to me that these things were the a result of a spirit, because I believe in the spirit world, of course, she's Catholic. Yeah, she's Catholic. But I don't believe the spirit world could interact with the physical world. What's a fucking soul, you idiot? <laughs> <laughs> Not only that, but doesn't the entire goddamn Bible talk about possessions? What about Legion, Jesus, and the pigs? But it can't interact with the physical world. No, no, no. Now, right after this instance where uh, she sets the table but the dishes disappear, the children, the two boys, start complaining that there's a growly voice coming from the refrigerator in the basement there. Um, could this be the motor? coming on every once yeah. He said it was like a growly, grindy voice. <laughs> <laughs> it's no. called a refrigeration unit. I don't know what that could be. Yeah. yeah, and not only that, but around that same time, the crucifixes started disappearing all over the house. Right, the crucifixes start disappearing one by one. They, they just suddenly disappear and go their own way. What the fuck? I thought, like, uh, ghosts couldn't handle crucifixes or demons couldn't take because it would burn their flesh or whatever right you hold a crucifix at a vampire and he, he shudders he and flinches and runs right? away yeah but somehow these these demons are squirreling away the figure of christ on a crucifix <laughs> oh my well we can't let them have this weapon against us hey charlie it's your turn to grab it <laughs> They're out there with some forceps and some tongs moving the crucifix. Well, they did have all those strange tools from the basement. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so Paul and his brother Bobby, um, or uh, the guy's name is Philip, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's his name. Philip, uh, Philip Snedeker. So the kid Philip Snedeker and his younger brother are now in bed at nighttime, and they look up and they both see like four ghosts whispering to each other. Yep. Um, Whispering and talking and shuffling papers. Why the hell ghosts have papers to shuffle? I have no idea. Uh, so they run upstairs, right? And they get the parents. The parents come down, and no one's there. Yeah. Now, let me relate a small story from my military days. When when I was put into the barracks room with uh, with my roommates, I warned them that if I don't get good amount of sleep, that I'll actually sleepwalk, and that they should just ignore me whatever I say. At that point, uh, about a month down the line, one of my buddies woke up because he found me looking out the window, peering into the darkness. And so he calls down to me saying, what's going on? And my response is, they're out there. They're watching us right now. So my buddy starts getting freaked out going, who's out there? And I basically say, look, if we pretend like we're asleep, they won't notice us. I crawl back into my sleeping bag, go to sleep with my buddy up in his little bunk, going, dude, what are you talking about? Who's out there? And then he gets down and looks out the window. I wonder if this could be the same sort of situation. It's dark, you know. These guys don't turn out the lights. They go straight up to the parents. When they come back down, the parents go back upstairs, they turn the light on, and suddenly 
no more sightings. What yeah. does that tell you? Well, uh, that tells me that ghosts have that skin disease where they can't come into certain lights. So mom uh, is convinced that it's the medications um, that are causing this. That, again, seems like a reasonable hypothesis. You know, uh, if you look up the medication, the the side effects of cobalt therapy, one of them is personality changes, right? We'll get into that a little bit later. Uh But she said their cancer doc, the oncologist, said there was no chance... Uh, that the hallucinations or delusions were caused by the medications. That sounds simple. Um, I'm going to call bullshit on that one. Uh, <laughs> first of all, you don't know how... You have an overall kind of study, right? They have to do all these studies, and you have a list of side effects. But it doesn't mean that um, if you take a medication, you have a side effect, it'll be on that list, right? Those are the most common, the ones that statistically yep. occurred. But you don't know how that medication or the radiation is going to affect any individual person. So one big clue is you're not having hallucinations, and then you start the medication, and then you have hallucinations, then you stop the medication and see what happens. <laughs> if the hallucinations go away, then yes, it was a side effect of uh, medication. You never tell someone that, hell no, you moron, that was not a side There's no chance, zero chance that could be uh, cause of the medication. Despite the fact that one of the side effects is a change in personality, there's no way this is even affecting the brain. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, they they start, you know, wondering, oh, I wonder what that's about. And then the dad finds a $358 electrical bill, yeah. and yeah, he at, is pissed off. Yeah. Up to this point, once the boys figured out that the lights on, no demons or ghosts visited them, the entire goddamn family started living with every light on in the fucking house. Right, because clearly they're all freaked out because the uh, uh, kids are going around saying, especially the older one, this is a funeral home, right? What do you do to your younger brothers and sisters? You torture them. (laughs) What are you talking about, younger brothers and sisters? Charlie, you're the same guy that when you put your children to bed at night, you used to warn them about demons and monsters, and then you'd go in the next room and scratch on the wall. <laughs> yeah, my wife was pretty mad about that. <laughs> I um, personally find it hilarious. But... <laughs> well, of course you do that to your family. That's one of the benefits of having brothers and sisters and kids to fuck around with. <laughs> So yeah, he's got everyone worked up, and maybe at this point he believes it himself. I don't know. And they're all worked up about it. You know, you're sleeping alone in a funeral home in the fucking basement, which your parents you've begged and pleaded to get out of. Your parents say no. Man up. <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> some scared. balls, you sickly bastard. I mean, seriously. So the next thing that happens is pretty funny. The younger brother wakes up out of sleep and sees the sister flicking the light off and on. Of course, yeah. the light is going off and on, even though there's no bulb in there. Yeah, yeah. Daddy got upset at the electric bill and took all the lights, so how could there possibly be a light flicking on and off with my little sister flicking the switch? So he runs up after his little sister and finds out from his mother, no, she's been asleep in her bedroom for a couple hours now. Hmm. And so this and- is, you know, transformed in the movie to the entire fucking house uh, flickering with all these lights, you know, every room in the house. Yeah, after drunken, um, abusive father comes in and smashes all yeah. of the lights. <laughs> Suddenly the entire house is lit up like Christmas time. But the reality is a little more uh, down to earth, and that is this this little kid came out, out of a sleep. Is it possible that he could have dreamed his sister standing there, flickering the lights on and off, 
Uh, no, absolutely impossible. There, there, none of us have ever had a dream that seemed that real, that when we woke up, we thought we were still, uh, you know, in the dream. Yeah. I love how this shit grows in the telling, by the way, too. Anyone tells me that the Jesus resurrection story could not have been mythologized so soon after his death, I'm going to call bullshit on that. The stories grow in the telling. Yeah. All we have to do at this point is point out, uh, have you seen the Haunting in Connecticut movie? Based on a true story. That's what the New Testament should say. <laughs> oh, based on a true story. Now, uh, do you know what, well, do you know what Garten, we'll, we'll speak about him in just a minute, but Garten wrote a book about this whole thing, and one of his statements is truly profound about this movie. He states, I suspect the movie will begin with the words, based on a true story. Be warned. Just about anything that begins with any variation of this phrase is trying a little too hard to convince you of something that probably isn't true. This is the goddamn son of a bitch that wrote the book about this stuff. Uh, of course. He was he was irritated that uh, he talked um, to the family and they were uh, inconsistent. And so he went back and was trying to talk to the publisher and say, look, man, do not... Uh, put this in the non-fiction section just let me write the story as these guys say it and we'll put it in the fiction section and uh, they wouldn't because they didn't want to give up that uh, true story true story yeah anyway (laughs) stupidity so at this time a disturbing change came over Philip the son yes yes In, in fact it was so disturbing that they were surprised that when the 17 year old cousin who he was supposedly very close to uh, no longer close to this cousin. In fact, he started treating her mean, he was angry, and he, when he wasn't so mean to her, he would tell her of things like, oh, I don't know, a demon is at the foot of my bed whispering things into my ear telling me to do things. Right. So, uh, he, keep in mind, this is a 14-year-old boy. He yep. becomes withdrawn and quiet. He insists on his own bedroom. He started wearing dark clothing. I don't know of any teenagers that, that, that this fits. This is truly unusual. Well, there, there's one difference between him and other teenagers, and it's a profound difference that our audience needs to understand. He didn't demand his own bottle of lotion. That we know of. That we know of. Maybe he was sneaking it, but he didn't demand it. He demanded his own bedroom, though. <laughs> Get out yeah. of here, kid. I got stuff to do. <laughs> Which... I mean, this also explains the fact that he's upset with his 17-year-old cousin. I mean, the dude's got hormones flying up the y- the ass. He's uh, sitting there thinking, I'm in chemotherapy, I'm weak, I'm sick all the time, I'm bald, I'm going to die without being uh, sexed up. Uh, yeah, there's a reason to be upset here. Yeah, uh, at this time, Philip's cancer goes into remission. Uh-huh. Uh, they take on the 17-year-old niece, Teresa, whose parents are getting divorced. Yep. Uh, so they're they're actually pretty close, right? They're cousins, and they, they were, prior to this, pretty close. She says that he went from being a really sweet kid to being really angry. Um, for me, that essentially describes the process of puberty. Yeah, yeah. Puberty in and of itself. The only difference is... He also told her about the man standing at the end of his bed whispering for him to do things. Yeah, he now, feels more comfortable with her uh, as opposed to the parents. So he says that, um, you know, he tells the girl that he'd been seeing and hearing things, right? Does this sound familiar to you at all? So he's hearing voices now, telling him to do bad things. All he's really missing is there's a radio that the government implanted in my 
tooth <laughs> and it's broadcasting my thoughts. Yeah. However, I, I have learned this, to counteract that radio with tinfoil on my head. <laughs> yeah. It always says that the demons keep getting stronger and stronger every time and they get meaner every time. And uh, they're telling me to go upstairs and do something bad. So about this time, um, Paul and Teresa get into like this physical confrontation. He's pulling on her arm. She's trying to get away. The parents uh, arrive, break it up, and Mom starts taking this stuff a little more seriously now. Yeah, yeah. Now, according to the family, he was becoming distant, dark, and violent, and there was a meanness that had come over him. So Mom takes her son to the psychiatrist. He said he's concerned about the behavior, right? He's brought him some of the, the writings and tells him a bunch of stories about her son's behavior. He says he's concerned, and he recommends counseling and therapy. And uh, the documentary just is very silent on that. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. they didn't follow through. However, on other um, sources, including the neighbors and uh, the guy who wrote the book, In a Dark Place, this Ray Garten, the author, uh, he was um, the neighbors knew that he had a history of mental illness. Uh, and he was eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia, which, of course, includes auditory hallucinations, paranoid uh, delusions, all that sort of thing. Makes perfect sense. I mean, since the kid got into the house, he's been claiming that somebody's been whispering his name and somebody has been telling him to do things. Right. He's hearing voices, for God's sakes. He's got, he's got a psychotic break, paranoid yeah. schizophrenia. Yeah. So um, what do they do? What do the parents do? Do they take the advice of the psychiatrist and put him on medication? Do they uh, take him in for counseling? No. Nah. Now, let's just ignore it and it'll go away. <clears throat> What's the worst that could happen, right? right? To the documentary's credit, they actually admit this next episode. Prior to this, like in the book, for example, and in the Sally Jesse Raphael show and the whole media tour that they went on at the time, uh, early 90s, they just said that the mother and uh, the niece were groped and fondled and sexually assaulted by demons while well, they slept. The exact statement was, uh, here, I pulled it out of an article. The experiences spread to other family members and got worse. Both parents said they were raped and sodomized by demons. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> these are horny demons, by the way, too. Um, the, the mother described the demons. One of the demons was very thin, with very high cheekbones, barely any hair, and pitch black eyes with little round glasses. She's getting a really fucking good look at these demons. Well, that's because he was sodomizing her. Another, well, you'd think she wouldn't be, if he's sodomizing her, she wouldn't have a very good view of his face. Maybe there was a mirror. Fuck. Another had chin-length black hair and blue eyes, wore a pinstripe tuxedo, and his master was constantly moving his hand in an up-and-down motion. <laughs> What's, and trust me, going? he wasn't conducting a choir. <laughs> what's going on there? <laughs> also, the one with glasses had a very big smile that on each side touched his eyes. Yeah, I can uh, guarantee that dude had a big <laughs> smile. We, we got his buddy sitting next to him just going up and down with the hand. He's sodomizing. <laughs> Why wouldn't you be smiling at this point? <laughs> I mean, there's massive amount of sodomy and uh, uh, fondling and groping going on in this household. Yeah. But the truth comes out in the documentary. Um, it was the son, Philip, who sneaked into the bedroom, pulled the sheets off Teresa, and attempted to uh, assault her. And because That's of, why he was removed from the house. Yeah, because of that, he was taken to a psychiatric hospital where he spent 45 days. Now, uh, 
the thing to note at this point is the mother in an interview also claimed that the father was raped and sodomized by demons, that both parents were. That's rough. Um, so the, the son's now out of the house. Yep. So mom thinks now for the first time, maybe he's telling the truth here. Maybe yeah. this does have something to do with the supernatural. So she walks down into, the, into Philip's bedroom, and she sits down on the steps, and she's challenging the demon to appear. Yeah, right? can't see a thing except for the bedroom. Can't see a thing. Even admits that she couldn't see anything. So what happens? Same thing as every other uh, suspected haunting after the sixth sense. It gets really cold. You yep. can see her breath, but she looks hard, and nothing happens. Yep. Very fearful, and it's a little cold down there. Huh. Barring the fact that it's a basement, I, I can't <laughs> fathom why it would be cold. So mom decides to take a shower, and uh, this is another one of those inexplicable events, Layton. I don't know yeah. how this, you know. Uh, well, there's happened. no way to explain this one away because she I mean, was attacked. It's not as if she's already freaked out about the cold and the fearfulness of the basement, or the fact that as her son was being dragged away to the loony bin, he's warning them that now that the demons are no longer after the son, that it'll be after everyone else, there can't possibly be a reason why she's worked up. Right, she's totally freaked out. The son said, now that I'm gone, they'll be after you. Yeah. So she gets attacked by the shower curtain. What kind of <laughs> pussy do you have to be to get beat up by a shower curtain? <laughs> have you ever seen a shower curtain that works out on a daily basis? A really angry shower curtain. <laughs> well, that's the roid rage kicking in. So, you know, it's not as if she stepped out of the shower, unwittingly stepped on the shower curtain, pulled it off the rack, she slips, falls down, and has a problem getting out of the shower curtain. I mean, the normal response to this when people come in is like, oh, shit, I'm an idiot. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I look really stupid wrestling with this shower curtain. <laughs> <laughs> but her response is, Oh, my God, I've been attacked by a demonic shower curtain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she even states, The shower curtain did wrap around my face so that I couldn't breathe. My niece had to come and rescue me. Her niece, however, had her blanket fall off the bed. Now, if that isn't supernatural, I don't know what is. Yeah, yeah. The niece wakes up, the blanket's off the bed. She hears this uh, aunt screaming, runs in there, and instantly the aunt's like... The demon's trying to suffocate me. So she says, there could be no denying it now. This was definitive evidence Supernatural was at work. Also, Ed, it's the middle of the night. For some reason, he's working in the middle of the night. Yeah. Uh, nearly gets run over by his own truck as it smashes into the office building. Yeah. Now, this so, episode occurs on the same night he had to stand there and watch his son get dragged away to the loony bin. Right. He's exhausted. He's uh, stressed out by his failure to pay all the bills. So what's more likely? That he gets out of the car, forgets to put it in park, <laughs> or, I don't know, he's still driving it and uh, presses the gas instead of the brake, yeah. smashes into his boss's office building. Maybe what, as he's you know, pulling in, he falls asleep at the wheel. I mean, <laughs> right, What's more likely, that or a demon? At the same time, the demonic shower curtain is strangling his wife and pulling a blanket off of the niece's bed uh, is uh, inside his car, hot-wiring his fucking truck and trying to run him over. Well, I've heard that demons are able to split themselves in two. It's called mitosis. So now, you know, this demonic possession isn't only at the house. He's fucking possessing his Chevy truck. 
So they flash back to home, and Teresa and the mom uh, see this black cloud come over them, right? Yeah. Uh, and then the rosary beads that are around her neck kind of levitate as the demon's grabbing the rosary beads and, and pulls those off. Yeah. Even they're, they're... Bobby, even Bobby hears voices uh, that wake him up from sleep. So, yeah, brother. Yes. So, so what does mom do? Calls, calls the priest. Yeah, there's there's no other explanation as to why these little rosary beads would just snap and fall off, except for the fact that the entire family was flipping out, and this little girl was probably clutching them so hard that the string snapped. <laughs> right, we're obviously assuming that all of these events actually happened, that there's no ulterior yeah. motive to make this shit up, like, I don't know, a book deal, a TV yeah. deal, and a movie deal. Yeah, because you got to love the fact that if you've gone through such traumatic experience that you want to relive it every single day with talk shows, book deals, and a movie. Very traumatic. Emotionally jarring experience. Yeah. So the priest comes over and he says, you know, evil gets stronger when you acknowledge it, so just don't acknowledge it. Yeah, we'll just ignore Basically, it. Basically, the translation is, stop fucking wasting my time, you bitch. <laughs> I have much more important things to do. Um, I, you know how many children I haven't molested yet in this county? Yeah, uh, there's still, uh, speaking of which, are your children coming to church on Sunday? <laughs> what happened to that boy? <laughs> so no, no, no. Um, the older one's not. <laughs> where's Bobby? Their um, mom then, you know, she doesn't like that. So she calls the next most reasonable people demonologists. Yes, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Yeah, they're the same demonologists who uh, investigated the Amityville horror haunting. So you know they're good. Yeah, because even that was proven to be fact. <laughs> even uh, credulous in believing people who are paranormal investigators. Forget you know Joe Nickel and those guys who who debunk it. Um, even people who believe in this shit have said that uh, that's a total hoax. <laughs> but they still to this day maintain, well, I think Ed's dead right now, but uh, they maintain for all their lives that uh, Amityville was actually true. Well, of course, they have to, because if they claim that that, well, oops, just a little mistake, it discredits them entirely to any crazy-ass housewife who calls them. Yeah. So they show up. <clears throat> Lorraine does what all the mediums do when they get in the houses like this. She stands up and says, I feel a very, very bad infestation. Yeah. And at this point, it's hilarious because Ed has to point out to the entire family who's getting creeped the shit out by this wife walking around staring off into space and points out, oh, well, when she starts feeling this stuff, she has to walk around and move and be mobile. Yep, this is what she does. So she finds a doorway straight to hell in the basement. Well, and any woman who is wearing a frock from the 1700s should know what a doorway to hell looks like. To remove the entity, of course you need to call in the Catholic Church because, uh, you know, the parents here are Catholic, the demonologists are Catholic, so clearly the demons themselves have to be Catholic as well. <laughs> well it's not like, you know, I'd love to see a, a Catholic... Uh, a strong believer in Catholicism going, wait a second, this isn't a, a demon, this is a genie. Yeah, we, we need we, some Muslims here. Let's call we in some, some Muslims. We need some imams to exercise this genie. Hold on, this is just an evil spirit. Let's call the Mormons, quick. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> a, always, uh, you know, within their own domain of expertise. But the Catholics have already been called in, and the priest had poo-pooed it. He's like, quit bothering me. Yeah, he so, shot it 
they decide to bring in chief researcher John Zaffis, who happens to be their nephew. (laughs) (laughs) And who claims that he has 36 years of experience before coming across this. Yeah. We'll go over all these claims at the very end. We'll do a little postscript on what the guy who actually investigated this shit and wrote the book had to say. So just keep that in mind. Um, He brings in video, audio, and other sensory equipment. I don't know what other sensory. I guess the whatever the ghost hunting equipment of the time was. Well, I've heard Um, they've got a newfangled device called the Licker. It just kind of licks the air for taste, too. (laughs) So he brings in, like, multiple suitcases full of recording equipment, and I'm like, hot damn, they're going to show some actual footage, right? Not only that, but they start telling everybody to sleep together and always stay in the company of another person. Yeah, they're brought into the living room because uh, the demon apparently gets people in isolation. Now, uh... (laughs) <laughs> Prior to this, they were saying that the demon doesn't like, uh, or the demon gets stronger when you acknowledge it. If you acknowledge it. it, yeah. So apparently now, instead of being acknowledged by everyone in a single room, which would make him massively powerful, he just preys on isolation. <laughs> it just doesn't, doesn't make sense. Well, apparently they haven't seen uh, paranormal activity. Right, because uh, this was about six years before Paranormal Activity. Hmm. This documentary was released before Paranormal Activity. So there was no Dutch ovening in the documentary like there was in the... (laughs) I bet if everyone's in the same living room, they better not have had Mexican for dinner. (laughs) Mom, why are you trapping my head under this blanket? (laughs) Oh, I feel... Actually, there was, you know, in a lot of the sources, um, people... (laughs) People kept reporting vile odors. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens when you put 20 people in one fucking room for nine weeks. Yeah, yeah, vile somebody's going to release one quietly. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't be. This is so vile, it could not be natural in origin. It has to be demonic. Oh, God, the demon's over there going, excuse me. <laughs> I didn't mean to let that squeaker out. Sorry. <laughs> that was me. So, Ed Warren says that this is a classic case of demonic possession, and he gives the five stages. Are you ready for this, Leighton? Oh, God. Five I stages of demonic five stages. possession. Number one, encroachment. So, you get the target to invite them in. This apparently happened in the basement where he was invited in by uh, the son, Philip, right? Yeah. Uh, they're like vampires. They can't come into your house. Demons are like vampires. You need to invite them in, or else they can't come into your house. And only one person has to invite them in, and then they can affect the entire family. Now, right, what exactly. kind of logical sense does that make? <laughs> Number two, step two, stage two, infestation. That's when they isolate the target, right? That's when he was being withdrawn. Yeah. S- step three is oppression. Where the individual becomes violent. Step four is possession, where the individual loses total control. Step five is death. So it's not really a classic case because the kid didn't really die. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Barring the death, what is the difference between those steps and puberty? (laughs) Puberty encroaches on you, then infests you, then impresses you, you, oppresses you. Uh, it's and definitely then, yeah. an oppressing factor, especially as you're yep. walking down the hallway. Ding! Oh, gotta yep. find my book. Yeah. 
Yeah, Ed Warren was reading the wrong book there. Those are the five stages of puberty. <laughs> so the demon at this point possesses the mother, right? Mm-hmm. She Apparently the, the son was the most vulnerable because of his illness, and he was sick and stuff like that. So the demon now goes to the next vulnerable person, and it's not like the kid or that old um, medium-sensitive lady, right, yeah. Lorraine Warren. It was inexplicably the mom for some reason, who's a staunch Catholic. Yeah, staunch Catholic, and she claims to have been overwhelmed with emotions, with the strongest of these being hopelessness. And so she flops down in front of everybody and just kind of lays there breathing and panting heavily. Now, I'm no expert, but I had a girlfriend who used to have panic attacks, and this sounds frighteningly similar to her panic attacks. does sound like a panic attack. She says, when I got back to my body, they said I'd been gone for eight hours. Bull fucking shit. Despite the fact that they were praying and using blessed water and rosary beads over her. Nice and fucking effective that was. Uh, maybe she just And they asleep. continued doing it for eight hours, even though there was no <laughs> sign of her getting better. Bullshit! So, uh, yeah, I'm going to call bullshit on that one, too. Eight hours and no one thought to record this? Bullshit. <laughs> Why yeah, don't we that, have some actual footage of her neck swelling and Well, because and her they were around. so worried about her condition yeah. <clears> that <throat> even the cameraman, whose sole purpose of being there was to record things like this, dropped down and began praying. Yeah, so the next step is everyone's asleep, and this chief lead researcher leaves yeah, the safety happens. of the group, yeah. right? He well, isolates before he himself. leaves, before he leaves, he looks around and notices that the mattresses are breathing. Oh, right, they have a pulse. But, of course, also neglects to uh, record that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Otherwise, we'd have some actual fucking footage for the documentary. Well, I hear there's not much interest in mattress <laughs> exorcisms. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not every day you get a mattress demonically possessed, but there's really not an interest in watching that exorcism. I wonder what would happen if they tried to strangle the mattress. Nope, stop breathing! (laughs) They just get some fat guy to lay on top of it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. So the researcher leaves the safety of the group, and, of course, it gets very cold again, right? That's your first clue that this is supernatural. Um, He he calls for help, apparently very weakly, because he's unable to wake up anyone in the next fucking room. So what does he do? Instead of walking two feet into the living room and shaking cold, someone right? awake, yeah, or, and maybe or nudge even him or picking shake up him. a camera, perhaps he walks straight to the basement stairs, looks down without a camera. The guy brings in, you know, two, three iron fucking suitcases full of recording equipment, and here's his chance to document a supernatural event. He's been, this is apparently his career over the last 30 years, right, we're told. Yeah, 36 Um, years investigating paranormal phenomena. Never found anything remotely like this, he'll tell people later, but doesn't fucking bring a camera. Yeah, in fact, his, his exact statement is, compared to that house, the other cases I had been involved with were like dealing with Casper the Friendly Ghost. So, he looks downstairs and sees the demon. No camera, no microphone, nothing. Apparently, according to the documentary, the demon's head swells up, pops, and a fireball issues forth, burning the guy. That's known as a a demon zit. (laughs) You don't want to pop a demon's white head. So, 
what does this guy do who's been seeking all his life of evidence for the supernatural? He packs up his shit and runs off like a little girl. <laughs> yeah, now, anybody else who was interested in this stuff would be like, holy fucking God, I got to get yeah. this on camera. That is Not a true scientist. A true Eureka, scientist. I found it. Fuck this shit, I'm out of here. Uh, leaving a yellow trail as he's fleeing. <laughs> <laughs> All that equipment and not one piece of original footage in the entire documentary. These guys stayed with them for nine weeks. Nine fucking weeks. Two months. Not one shred of footage. Which, of course, the uh, Warrens would have been paid for had they provided it. Yeah. I mean, they would have been paid handsomely. Can you imagine all of these news stations going to science yeah. saying, ha-ha, in your face we have video footage? Right. That's a... Uh... That's a lot of money they'd fork over, each individual station. So the uh, Catholic Church finally relents, give them an exorcism, and uh, the guy's <laughs> Father Richard is <laughs> going around sprinkling holy water, and the most ungodly manifestation of demonic activity ever occurs. This was frightening to even watch replayed. The demon pulls at his shirt, kind of tugs one piece of his shirt. Yep. And... The priest ignores it. Because <laughs> you can't acknowledge evil, right? Yeah. So the demon, thus defeated, shrinks back and doesn't manifest anymore. Right. No, no. During the actual exorcism, the candle blows out. Things start rattling and falling on the floor. Mom is slammed against the wall five feet off the ground. Yeah. Teresa's choked with her little prayer beads. Yeah, three and feet then... off the ground. So that not acknowledging the demon really paid off. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, this entire time you got your seventeen-year-old niece up there, and the father looks at her, and then just looks back down and goes back to yeah. read. The other priest is like, "No, don't interfere. Don't interfere." <laughs> it's all right that she's levitating three feet above the floor with a universal sign of choking. Don't interfere with the exorcism. Yeah, we can't help her now. All we can do is finish. <laughs> and of course, and none of this. Done, none of this is recorded. Yeah. Not one fucking ounce of the exorcism is recorded. And actually, from alternative sources, it may never have occurred. Yes. Uh, in in fact, the Snedeker family claims the exorcism happened on September 6, 1988. They claim that two priests prior to this visited the home but became frightened and left. They finally got a, th a third, whose name they refused to state or even uh -huh. know, was finally able to rid the house of its evil once and for all after three hours of exorcism. Right. Now, this is according to the mother. Now, in an article in 1992 to the Hartford Current, the local Roman Catholic archdiocese say there was no authorized exorcism ever conducted at that house. Right, right. And apparently, according to the author of the book, the priests they did use were kind of shady in character. So um, we we don't really know what happened, but apparently, according to the official version of the Catholic Church, no one exercised anything. But, you know, after the non-existent exorcism, uh, the house was warm, comfortable, and you, you felt like you were free. Yeah, completely fine. Now, yeah. that goes against the fact that all neighbors, including the guy who owns the house claim and state that there was never any activity before or even after this family. Now, what do you do if suddenly you've run the exorcism, the demonic presence is gone, and your son 
is still in the psych ward because of all of this. Well, right. Um, they didn't throw mom in the psych ward or, or dad, even though they were being sodomized every night. Well, they enjoyed that. <laughs> they didn't complain about that. <laughs> the sodomy's okay, but if you put my plates back after I set the table, that's where I fucking draw the line. Uh, you are fucked up. I have a life, and you are slowing me down. <laughs> Make me mop up blood? That's extra work for me. Hey, come Jesus. on, I had to call in the, the little housekeeper and had to pay her extra to help. So they say, you know, right after the exorcism... In the documentary, The Family's Moving Out, they said, too many bad memories, we had too many negative emotions, you know, we couldn't take it anymore, we had to leave, and it, it shows everybody rolling up the rugs and moving the furniture out. Yeah. Uh, reality, unfortunately, gets in the way of that. They moved in, I think, 1986 or early 1987, stayed until 1989. Yeah. Two and a half years. They the stayed for two years, and even the landlord is sitting there going, if they had such a problem, why didn't they leave earlier? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the story in the documentary, quite different from the movie. Yeah. Um, but let's talk to the only guy really who uh, actually actively investigated this. Let's see what he has to say uh, for his book, right? Yeah. This is Ray Garten. Ray Garten. Now, now, he was hired by Ed and Lorraine Warren. And uh, as he comes in and he starts investigating this, very quickly he discovers a problem. And this is an exact quote he gave in an interview to the Horror Bound magazine. He says, I found that the accounts of the individual Snedekers didn't quite mesh. They couldn't keep their story straight. I went to Ed with this problem. He told me not to worry that the family was crazy. I was shocked. He said, all the people who come to us are crazy. You think sane people would come to us? He knew I'd written a lot of horror novels prior to that, so he told me to just make the story up using whatever details I could incorporate into the book and make it scary. And Credence is lent to that view because Ray Garten is a horror fiction novelist. Yes. He writes scary stories. If they wanted the truth, the Warrens would have hired an investigative journalist, not a horror fiction writer. Yeah, and that yeah. kind of pissed him off. Um, he he went back to his publicist and and said, you know, this is totally ridiculous. I've been told to make this shit up. Uh, I really would like rather have this published in the fiction section and have based on a true story or based on true events removed from the uh, title of the novel. But uh, it was contractually obligated to to leave that in. Yeah. So he started investigating in 1991. This is just a couple of years after the uh, events took place, right? And we're talking a couple of years, and the family still couldn't get their story straight. So in an interview with uh, Damned Connecticut... <laughs> nice. <laughs> all that's weird, unexplained, and unusual in Connecticut. Um, they ask him, You've publicly questioned the Snedeker story. What things in particular don't you believe? What leads you to question their credibility? Do you have any particular evidence? He says they couldn't keep their story straight, for starters. The family was a mess, but their problems were not supernatural, and they weren't going uh, to get the kind of help they needed from the Warrens. At the time I was with them, Carmen was running some kind of... Carmen's Karen, the mother. Yeah, the mother. Um, they keep changing their names. Uh, Carmen was running some kind of illegal interstate lottery scam that I don't think I was supposed to find out about, but when I did, she repeatedly urged me not to mention it in the book and not to tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, these are honest, upright, um, good church-going folk. We can't discredit anything they say. I'm There's sorry. no ulterior motive for floating this haunted 
house story, right? Illegal interstate lottery scam. (laughs) Their son, around whom the entire story centered, was nowhere to be found. You'd figure the guy who's investigating this would have access to the son, right? Well, he was he was the prime basis behind all of this. And I mean, fuck, the family has an exorcism and still leaves him in psychiatric care for 45 days. <laughs> something then, else is going on. Yeah, something else is going on. Not only that, but I found some statements from the family that said that he was dark, he was mean, up until they allowed him to move out and to go with other family members, and suddenly all the meanness left him. He was all normal once he got out of the clutches of his parents. Yeah. Mm. So he goes on, I, I never met him. I was allowed to talk to him briefly on the phone, but as soon as he started telling me that the things he saw in the house went away after he'd been medicated, Carmen abruptly ended the conversation. That's very interesting. He Remember, they took him to the psychiatrist. Uh, according to the sources, uh, neighbors and uh, this guy himself, I think, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. So he started medicating him and apparently stopped hearing the voices. <laughs> so, However, mom didn't want that said, so she quickly hung up the phone. <laughs> right. Click. Your access is cut off. So there, there, there you have the, the whole basis of the story. It probably started with this kid's schizophrenia. Hearing voices, seeing things. Uh, what about the Warrens? He says, The Warrens repeatedly told me they had videotape of actual supernatural activity shot in the house, and they were going to show it to me while I was there, but they never did. Well, they should sure as hell have uh, videotape of this shit. They stayed in there for nine fucking weeks. Exactly. And they had their nephew, who is supposedly this master investigator, he was the one that was in charge of the investigation. Now, the the funny thing about this guy... Until, is, he, until he shit his pants yeah, and wouldn't come back. Yeah, until he shit his pants and run away. Now, the funny thing about this is he can't keep his story straight about what made him shit his pants. <laughs> On the documentary, he claims the demon's head exploded into flames. On an interview that I was able to dig up, he claims that he followed this spirit as it descended down the main stairwell and then turned to him and said, Do you know what they did to us? And at that point, all I wanted to do was get my car keys and get the hell out of that house. <sighs> well, this is very interesting. He says, since writing the book, I've learned a lot that leaves no doubt in my mind about the fraudulence of the Warrens and the Snedekers. Not that I had much doubt anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but going back to that, he said that they lost the tape. So here they have evidence of supernatural activity, right? Which, again, as we said, it'd be worth... Uh, probably tens of thousands of dollars, maybe more. Millions, at um, least. I mean, we're talking actual evidence. But they unfortunately lost the tape. Isn't that, isn't that terrible? Well, it, it, it happens a lot when you actually confront somebody and say, okay, I would like to take a look at your proof. He goes on to say the Snedekers claimed they had no idea the house was a former funeral home until after they'd move in. Uh, but it seems nearly everyone in the neighborhood knew it was a former funeral home. It was no secret. I've learned that the supernatural problems in the house didn't start until the landlord, frustrated after months of being unable to get rent out of the Snedekers, made moves to have them evicted. Then, all of a sudden, the house was infested with demons. <laughs> well, that, there seems to be something with that. Now, not only that, but Susan Trotta Smith is the owner of the home right now. And this is what she has to say. We've lived in the house for 10 years. Our house is wonderful. This is all Hollywood foolishness. The stories are all ludicrous. Right. Well, that's because 
uh, they successfully exercised the house, of course. Yeah, except for there were no reports of anything before they moved in, too. <laughs> well, you'd think, do they have any ulterior motive for this? You think? Let's see. They were getting evicted, and they needed something to complain about. He says, uh, Ray Garden goes on to say that Carmen Snedeker, now Carmen Reed, is the one who did all the talking when I was gathering information for the book. Al Snedeker said very little, and, and that's actually evidenced in both the movie and the documentary where very little stuff happened to Al, right? Yeah, the dad. He's, he's barely in it. I mean, in the movie, he gets more play because he's trying to be a good dad, and then he's a drunken bastard. Right. Carmen was running the show. Now she's selling herself as a, quote, spiritual advisor and claims she's always had this gift, although yeah. it never surfaced while I knew her. Back then, she was just a housewife running an illegal lottery scam. She's also on a lecture circuit now, which tells me she's le- learned a lot from the Warrens and their nephew, John Savitz. <laughs> <laughs> well, to top that little cherry, uh, they all report now, the entire family reports, of being sensitive to supernatural forces since their time in the creepy house in Connecticut. Sometimes it serves them well, says this uh, little woman. I sold real estate for a while. If I wouldn't sell you a house, you can bet it was because I knew it was haunted. <laughs> well, that's very moral of her, that she wouldn't sell a haunted house to people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Goddamn. So, uh, what you have is a family who's run on hard times. Uh, there's some question whether the kid had cancer or not, or whether it was all just drug problems or schizophrenia. Uh, according to the neighbors, they never heard about the cancer. Um, but, you know, sometimes you don't. Yeah, sometimes a family... Well, it would be very difficult to keep that a secret, though. If they are driving him daily for treatment, yeah, and he's losing his hair, a neighbor's going to look over and notice this. So uh, the claim has some validity. Yeah, uh, the neighbors did know about both his drug problem and his mental illness, but they didn't know about the cancer. And uh, revealingly enough... Ray Garten says that uh, when he was interviewing the family, they didn't seem to know very many details about the cancer. They were very vague on it, didn't exactly know what type of cancer it was. Um, and How so, can you not know the goddamn type of cancer that your son is dying from? Yeah. So um, he's trying to recall. He thinks that he named it Hodgkin's cancer. He was the one who did some research and, and put that in his book. He's pretty sure the family didn't say anything to him. So that whole Hodgkin's cancer, that may come from the book that he wrote and not from the family itself. And again, the documentary, they didn't say anything. Nope. And you they, bet your ass if my kid has cancer, I know every fucking detail about it. You're going to research it. You're going to look into methods which have been known to beat it, known to help, known to harm. You're going right. to do the research. That is a little fishy. And I always wondering why during the movie and the documentary he was just vaguely sick you know they're always coughing when they're sick cough yeah. cough cough cough, cough. See, I'm, I'm sick. sick can you tell <laughs> cough cough yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they never named the cancer you know they, you'd think that the writer would uh, do some research and say yes it was um, Hodgkin's lymphoma and you have the doctor say some things all you really have is the doctor in the movie saying when the kid gets taken back into the ambulance, the movie with all the writing carved into his skin, which he healed from very quickly. By the yeah, way. we're talking Wolverine-type healing fast. The doctor said, well, we've, we've run panels, and apparently the treatment has had no effect. <laughs> we've run panels. 
<laughs> yeah, your son is going to die. Now, this is the movie, whereas the documentary, he gets better, and then, of course, he gets uh, institutionalized. So. Right, yeah. All right, so that pretty much winds up haunting in Connecticut. What are we doing next week? Uh, something about Judaism, whatever the fuck that is. We're covering the Jews next week? Uh, well, I don't see how they could need any sort of covering. The worldwide Jewish conspiracy has contacted us and uh, is forcing us to do a podcast on Judaism next week. Yeah, yeah. Like the Holocaust actually happened. We'll go over that. We'll get to the truth of the matter. Yeah, that's what we're good at. <laughs> Thank you.